right, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab them. Let's turn to Luke this morning, a brand new series as we uh, kick off today. So if you're a visitor with us, we're so glad you're here. What a great day to be here as we start a brand new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And so it is uh, going to be a long sermon series. Uh, there are 24 chapters, and so uh, we should be celebrating and looking at, um, you know, Luke this time next year. So uh, we'll, we'll be in here for a while. Uh, we just finished 2 Peter, and so 2 Peter ended with uh, the look at Christ's return. And so what better way to anticipate his second coming than by going back and looking at his first coming? And uh, it is an exciting time as trees are going up all over the place before Thanksgiving to go ahead and get in the Christmas spirit. So uh, over the past several years, we've taught through many books of the Bible, Ephesians, Nehemiah, 1 Thessalonians, Romans, Philippians, Acts, and all the way back in 2020, when we were forced to go virtual, we started the Gospel of Mark. And so it has been several years since we've been in a gospel, and I'm excited to be back in a gospel. It is a little bit of a shift when you go from uh, going through an epistle and going verse by verse, sometimes word by word, to a historic narrative. But it is exciting to be back in the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is going to show us the account, the narrative of the life of Christ. It'll focus our hearts and our lives back on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now, last night I was at a wedding. I got to go to a wedding, a family member's wedding, and it was down in Georgia. And uh, we had that moment where we had to sneak out, right? And the dance floor and the front door were right next to each other. So I was like, we're just going to have to dance our way out of here, I think. Uh, but as we were dancing our way out, um, one, of the, one of the gentlemen there, um, he came to me. He's like, are you, are you leaving? And I was like, yeah. You know, it's that awkward. Yeah, we're, we're leaving. And, uh, oh, you're not, you're not staying the night. I was like, no, no, I got to get back to church in the morning. I, you know, I have to preach. And uh, he was like, oh, what's, what's that about? Well, I'm, I mean, if, since you asked, I'm uh, starting the book of Luke tomorrow, and I'll be starting in chapter 1 and going through verses 1 through 25. And he said, oh, I, I don't know what that's about. And I was like, well, I can't really have a talk with you right now on the dance floor, uh, even though I'd really like to. But it, it, it shocks me that, you know, this, this young man, he's, he's been raised in the South. He's been raised in somewhat rural Georgia, and yet, as I mentioned in the gospel, he says, I, I don't know what that's about. The gospel of Luke is written to us so that we would know what it's about. All of life is found in these verses. The, the life of Jesus Christ and how it impacts a believer. We're, we're going to see that Jesus is the one who comes for the, the lost, He's the one that comes to heal the brokenhearted. He's the one that comes to offer forgiveness and eternal life for all who will believe in him. We will see that Jesus is the son of man, the son of God, the one who put on flesh to redeem us. It'll be a beautiful journey as we go through this narrative. And it's my prayer that over the weeks and months to come, as we explore the gospel of Luke together, that our hearts would be open to the transforming power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we jump in here in just a second, let me pray for us, and then we'll read. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gospel accounts. We thank you that we have written down for us 
in the canon of Scripture that, that you sent your son. For those of us who we know we're, we were lost, we were sinful, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and, and you broke through the timeline and came to earth and put on flesh to redeem us. So we thank you for the story that we get to begin. I pray that it does draw us to you, changes us from the inside out. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 1, as we uh, start in verse 1 and go through 25, if you have your Bibles, you'll need them. It's a lengthy section. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended... He went home. He went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is God's word. First thing I want you to see is a gospel purpose. 
there's a gospel purpose that is taking place. The first uh, several verses here, uh, verses 1 through 4, is literally one sentence. And it's written in a different type of, of Greek. It's, it's written much like a historical document would begin. And so what Luke wants to do here is set the stage of saying, listen, this is truth. This is historical document. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those... Whom from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Right here he says, listen, many have taken upon themselves uh, to compile a narrative, the story of Jesus Christ. There are eyewitness accounts. There are ministers, those who are being persecuted for the gospel right now. They are, they are delivering us a message, a narrative. So what is the gospel's? Well, the English term gospel comes from the old English Godspell, a translation of the Greek noun euanglion. Euanglion means good tidings or good news. So even as we see the angel Gabriel show up, he says, listen, I brought you some good news. This is good news. And in fact, we have four accounts of the good news, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, Matthew, written to a Jewish background. Mark, written to Romans. John, written to Greeks. Luke is now written to Gentiles writing to people who may not understand Jewish background. They may not have been raised reading the Bible. And so this is written for those who say, I don't know anything about that. That's what this gospel is for. So who is Luke? Who is the one who's writing to us? Well, he was a Gentile. He was a physician. He was a friend and a missionary companion of the Apostle Paul. We see his name pop up in other places, Colossians 4, 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And then in 2 Timothy, later on, in 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Demas had left. Luke is left. Luke now takes upon himself to compile a narrative. He wants us to know the gospel. In fact, he gives us a two-part. He gives us the gospel of Luke, and then he goes on to write Acts. Actually, this makes up the majority of the New Testament. This Gentile believer writes the vast volume of the New Testament. And he wants us to understand the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He wants us to understand in Acts that it's carried on through a spirit-filled church to accomplish spreading the good news to all people. So he writes these things, and he says, you know, it seems good to me also. Luke never refers to himself. He really wants you to see Jesus as center stage. Seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Well, who is this Theophilus? Theophilus, you know, we, we don't know for sure, um, Luke has done some thorough investigation of the life of Christ. He's gone back and painstakingly interviewed eyewitnesses to give this account to him. Many believe that Luke actually went and talked to Mary to get the, the birth account of Jesus. Like He's gone back and he's done all of this interview. The word eyewitness here is where we get the word autopsy. As a physician, he wants to do an autopsy on the story of Jesus. And he wants to deliver to you all of the facts. What a great way to see this book. 
So most excellent Theophilus means that he had a title most likely that referred to a Roman government official. He may have even hired Luke to do this. Theophilus, though, his name means one who loves God. So this letter is not only written to one man, but written to all who love God. And want to know the facts about his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Let me ask you, do you love God? Then this letter is written to you. And what is the purpose? Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty, that you may know that what you have been taught, what you have learned about Jesus Christ, you can count on. This is the historical document. The Christ-centered exposition says it this way. All the other religions teach humanity how we may climb up to God. Christianity teaches this is how God came down to you. It's the only faith where God in his great love and mercy wraps himself in our humanity, lives in our places, suffers and dies for us, then rises for our forgiveness and right standing with God. As a consequence, all who believe in the Son of God are reconciled to God, forgiven their sins, and joined together with God by faith. Luke wants you to have certainty of this. And the reason he wants you to have certainty of the things you've been taught, maybe you've been taught this since you were a little child, that you would have a certainty because with certainty becomes a changed life. If you are certain of the, of the account and the narrative of Jesus Christ, if you've, if you've come to a certainty of that, it'll change your life. So that is the purpose. Secondly, a gospel promise. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Luke doesn't begin his historical account with Jesus. He, he sets the stage. He actually sets the stage with a baby announcement. What a great time to celebrate babies being born. We've even had an announcement of a baby shower. What a great time in the life of many of you where we see babies are being born People are getting pregnant. We're growing the church one way or another. Like, it's going to happen, right? And now that you're doing all these gender reveals, like, we didn't do that when I had kids. My kids are adults now. Um, you know, we, we weren't creative back then. We didn't have social media. Um, and so I remember when we were going to tell everyone that, that we were pregnant with Livy. This is, what, 19 years ago? And so, um, so we were like, all right, let's be really creative and let's get a T-shirt that says, I'm a big brother, and let Eli wear that. And so sure enough, we went to a family 4th of July party, and he was wearing that T-shirt. Nobody noticed. <laughs> uh, Abby said her grandma was like, oh, hey, Eli, talking to him. And she was like, did you read his shirt? And she was like, it's so adorable. Well, let, me, let me read it to you. So she read it to her, and she goes, oh, I get it. You know, like it's, it's one of those things. This is the baby announcement. This is the baby announcement that's been coming for a long time. And so Luke begins with the baby announcement. He says, look, there, there was this child that was prophesied about all the way back in the Old Testament, and it's coming true. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger 
of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The very last verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see the, the similarities in, in what Luke writes and what we see in Malachi. Now, this was written 400 years ago. There's a baby announcement, and then you've got to wait 400 years. Not nine months. We're going to wait 400 years for this. Can you imagine 400 years of silence? Silence. What was America doing 400 years ago? 1623. It was like Jamestown. That was it. Like, that was all we had. The Mayflower had just shown up a couple years before that. Like, can you imagine those people and all the generations waiting in silence for God's promise? Just silence. And then he says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Herod, who is this Herod? Herod is called Herod the Great. And king of Judea would mean that he ruled over the region of the Jews. He ruled from 37 or 36 B.C. to 4 B.C. He comes from the family line of Esau. He's an Edomite. Basically, he would have claimed that he was a Jew, but he really wasn't. He was not a God-fearing man. Even though he built the temple, he wanted it to be called Herod's Temple. He's trying to make a name for himself rather than a name for God. You see uh, that he's a wicked, wicked man. He's basically an egotistical puppet of Rome, in a hostile time of Roman imperialism. He's a political figure making evil decisions on behalf of a people. Herod was evil. He murdered his own wife. He murdered his, two of his sons. He was always afraid that someone else was going to take his throne. And in fact, he orders the murder of innocent children trying to kill Jesus as a child. We read about this in Matthew's account, Matthew 2, 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This evil political leader decides to make a decree to kill babies. You know, things haven't really changed, have they? You, you see a, a nation, even this week, voting in approval of the murder of innocent lives. Second Kings 17, 14 through 17, we see that even in the Old Testament, there was idol worship. There was evil worship of Baal and the Canaanite practices of child sacrifices. 2 Kings 17, 14 through 17, but they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. 
provoking him to anger. Jeremiah 7, 30-31, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topeth, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did, I, did it come to my mind. As you see, throughout history and throughout the Bible, God is a pro-life God. And to promote or to vote for abortion rights is to promote or to vote for an anti-God worship of self and idolatry. It's not a political issue. It's a moral issue. It's a biblical issue. We are a pro-life church because we serve a pro-life God. We're a pro-life church because we're a biblical church. And we hold to the scriptures for what they truly are. We do not add to them. We do not dilute them. We do not veer off of them. We hold to the scriptures as truth. And it changes the way that we live because we are certain of the things that we've been taught. This is the point of Luke. To start with a promise. Now I want you to look at the contrast as we move from Herod to Zechariah. Verse 5. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Well, who is this Zechariah that comes out of nowhere? His name means Yahweh has remembered. It's been 400 years since the promise, and now we see a priest his name means God remembers. Zechariah served as a priest two weeks out of the year. Some of you think I only work one day and it's a half a day on Sunday. Zechariah, he worked for two weeks a year. That was it. And during that time, there was about 18,000 priests, and they subdivided the priesthood of 18,000 to 24 divisions. And so there were 750 priests in each division. And so this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. His name is going to be drawn by lot so he can go in and burn incense, and have a time of prayer on behalf of the people. He's married. He's married to a woman whose name is Elizabeth. Her name means God is my oath, God is my promise. God remembers his promise. Do you see this? It's been 400 years. This is where Luke wants to start. God remembers his promise. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Elizabeth was from the line of Aaron. She also had a priestly lineage. And so in a world full of sin, in a world full of hypocrisy, in a world full of religious routines and silence from God, they were faithful. They were two that were faithful. They were waiting upon the Lord and his promise. And their faith is described in two ways. They were righteous before God in position and blameless before God in practice. What a way to be found. Righteous before God in position, blameless before God in practice. Philippians 3.9, And to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Though they were following God's commands, these were people of faith. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were people of faith waiting on the promise of God. J.C. Ryle says, on the account of the righteousness of Elizabeth and Zechariah, it matters little whether we interpret this righteousness as that which is imputed to all believers for their justification or that which is wrought inwardly in believers by the operation of the Holy Ghost for their sanctification. The two sorts of righteousness are never disjoined. There are none justified who are not sanctified, and there are none sanctified who are not justified. Suffice it for us to know that Zechariah and Elizabeth had grace when grace was very rare. Blameless. Philippians 2.15 That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights in the world. They were different. Their faith was different. They were righteous in position and blameless in practice. They were so blameless that they were innocent before God. They were, they were those who stood out as lights in a wicked and crooked and twisted generation. Let me ask you, are you in position because of Jesus Christ righteous? And in your practice, are you walking blameless? It's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of faith. And though they were faithful, they were dealing with a major painful disappointment in life. Although they were faithful, they were still dealing with disappointment. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. But God hears their prayer. Despite their righteousness, despite their faithfulness, despite their service to the Lord, they were dealing with a deep disappointment. Some of us in here, we know that. We know what it's like to be dealing with pain and disappointment. We know what it's like to be carrying a deep hurt. And though we were trying to be faithful, and though we were trying to be righteous and blameless, though we're trying to follow the Lord, we're carrying a wound. And maybe only God knows about it when we pray in silence. God, hear my cry. Hear my prayer. I want to serve you faithfully, but I am, I am so disappointed right now. It's a gospel prayer. Now, while he was serving as priest, verse 8, before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Who is John? His name means God has been gracious. God has remembered, God has a promise, and God is gracious. This is how the good news is starting to unfold. Zechariah had been praying for a child. It had probably been a prayer request that him and his wife had repeatedly shared together. It's likely that Zechariah was praying for the promised Messiah at this moment. The redemption of Israel and God hears his prayer and graciously answers his prayer by answering both prayers. It, you know, him being advanced in age, this might have been a prayer they shared a long time ago and grew weary in. 
Let me just say, if you're a married couple, you should be praying together. This should be, this should be a part of your faith of being righteous and blameless, that you come together and, with your spouse and you pray. You pray for your children. You pray for your unborn children. You pray together. And as you pray together, let me tell you what, what's remarkable, is that God uses the relationship of marriage to sanctify you. As you both spur one another on towards a deeper love relationship with Jesus Christ. And if, if you are married and you've not been praying together, I challenge you today, before, before you lay your head on the pillow, grab your spouse's hand and say, let's pray. John, he was the promised one that would prepare the way for the Lord. And he is the answer to a prayer. J.C. Ryle says, we learn here, for one thing, that prayers are not necessarily rejected because the answer is long delayed. Zechariah, no doubt, had often prayed for the blessing of children and, to all appearance, had prayed in vain. At his advanced time of life, he had probably long ceased to mention the subject before God and had given up all hope of being a father. And then an angel appears and scares him. And that would be pretty scary. God hears your prayers. I want you to understand that today. Whether they've gone unanswered, whether it's been in a time of silence, he hears your prayers. And you will have joy, verse 14, and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Even in his mother's womb, the Spirit will be upon him. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He will be great before the Lord. Jesus, in fact, said there's no one greater than John in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John never saw the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He never got to see that. So those in the kingdom who have the good news, have seen the finished work of Christ, they're even, they're even greater than, than he. A voice cries, Isaiah 40, verse 3, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John would preach with the power of Elijah. John would preach a message of repentance, and he would be a voice rebuking people of their sinful lifestyles. John would truly be the greatest prophet of his era, calling people to prepare for the coming Messiah. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will be set apart. There will be a separation about him because he will be used by God. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't, don't be like those drunks who are led by a spirit that's, that's found in a bottle, but be one who is led by the Spirit of God. Let it be obvious in your life that you've been sanctified and separated for his work. This was John. 
And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I love it. He's, he's so wise. He doesn't call his wife old. He just says, she's, well, she's advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and not able to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple, verse 22. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. What I see about Zechariah is he's righteous. He, he's blameless. He's righteous in position. He's blameless in practice. He's praying. He's a devout praying man, he goes into a place of worship to offer up prayers. An angel of the Lord appears to him, and yet he still doubted God's word. You realize that you can be righteous. You can be blameless. You can be a person of prayer. You can be somebody who comes to a corporate gathering of worship, and you can sit there in the pew and still say, I, I just don't know. I just don't know. Zechariah doubted, and there's a consequence to doubts. Doubting God's word carries a consequence of dumb silence before men. Simply put, if you have doubts about Jesus, you won't be able to speak up for Jesus. If you sit here today and you have doubts about Jesus, well, then how are you going to speak about Jesus when you get out into the world? As Warren Wearsby says, nothing closes a believer's mouth like unbelief. And many of us, we've been silent among those that we work with, those in our family, who don't know the truth. Is it because there's doubt hidden deep in our hearts? As Paul would say, we have a ministry of belief. In 2 Corinthians 4, 13 through 15, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with him, with you, into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. It may increase Thanksgiving. I mean, this, I know we put up Christmas trees, but it is really the season of Thanksgiving. And if we want to see Thanksgiving increase, we need to see more and more people come to the grace of God. It will increase the Thanksgiving. And how do we see people become more and more into the grace of God? We speak. I believe. So I speak. As Luke says there in verse 3 and 4, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, 
to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty says something. Are you certain today? <laughs>